This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Tory says the impact of the vacuum created by the departure of Bakani, the counterinsurgency operation led by France and European troops from the region is very severe. That's uh, Lisa Schlein reporting on UNHCR concerns about security in Mali. Details coming up. Also, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in South Africa. Opposition leader Tundu Lisu arrived in Tanzania today to a warm welcome. And a new report says Africa has become less safe and democratic. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Tunisia is in the midst of negotiating a much-needed loan from the IMF. The loan is seen as the last chance for the country to avoid an economic collapse. Some regional experts have argued that Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, has shown little interest in international affairs, including the IMF negotiations. Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at Carnegie Middle East Program, spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi about Saeed's foreign policy, or lack of, and its impact on Tunisian economy. I do think that President Saeed seems to understand the need for the IMF deal and just how serious of a situation Tunisia is in right now. But I don't think he understands the broader context of why investors are fleeing Tunisia, which is due both to the economic situation as well as to the political climate that Saeed himself has created. You know, he's created this situation that's just not attractive to investors or tourists or Tunisians themselves, where, for example, if you speak ill of the president, you can find yourselves in jail for 10 years. This is not the kind of investment climate he needs to be creating. Saeed's first foreign trip was to Algeria in February 2020 to meet President Abdel Majid Tabun. Algeria and Tunisia were tied together by a shared border, trade and investment, but the relationship between Tabun and Said seems to also rest on a shared worldview, which is suspicious of international actors and their motives. How would that worldview serve Tunisia? I don't think that this worldview actually is serving Tunisia right now. Saeed's vision, this idea that of all this sort of foreign intervention has really ended up isolating Tunisia from many of its partners. I think Algeria can get away with this sort of approach because of its hydrocarbon wealth. But Tunisia doesn't have that sort of wealth in its back pocket. It needs the international community and the private sector investors in order to survive. It really cannot afford to adopt the Algerian posture towards donors right now. Tunisia hosted the 8th Tokyo International Conference on African Development. Despite warning from the Japanese government and others, the Tunisians welcomed Brahim Lali, the president of the self-proclaimed Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, and Morocco recalled its ambassador from Tunisia and cancelled its participation in another regional sporting event hosted by Tunisia. If Qais Saeed was focusing on the neighboring countries in the Maghreb region, why would he spoil relations with neighbor Morocco? I think, first of all, that Saeed is doing everything he can to keep Algeria and Tabun happy. You know, Algeria has been the main country that has supported Saeed financially and diplomatically since his coup. But I also think he really didn't understand how far this would go and how far this sort of decision would anger Morocco and how much it would backfire and hurt 
Moroccan-Tunisian relations. It also just shows how inexperienced Said is with politics and diplomacy. You know, it's pretty clear to anyone looking at this situation that this was likely to happen, that the relations were going to be dramatically hurt. But Said didn't seem to understand that when he took that move towards Ghali. In a recent article you wrote, it's also possible that Said sees Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as a model for how to govern. The Egyptian president came to power, ousting democratically elected Islamist government, and in years since, PC has consolidated power in the executive branch, arrested or otherwise marginalized political dissidents and perceived opponents, closed space for independent civil society, and curtailed free speech in the name of national security. Some of these actions have already been replicated by Saeed. Should Tunisians be worried of efforts by Saeed to emulate Sisi? Certainly. I think, first of all, that the CC model has not paid off for Egyptians themselves. You know, today, the Egyptian economy is really in shambles, and Egypt is suffering from many of the same concerns as Tunisia, including food scarcity, inflation, high unemployment. But it's also highly repressive, with one of the worst climates for journalists in the world, where CC regularly jails his opponents and civil society actors. And so I think that this is something Tunisians should be really careful not to allow Saeed to replicate. Saeed has already done quite a bit that endangers Tunisians, endangers the economy, the political situation, their socioeconomic status. But they should do everything they can to guard against Saeed continuing to follow Sisi's path. That was Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at Carnegie Middle East Program. She spoke with VOA's Mohammed al-Shinawi. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, warns the departure of European forces from Mali has created a dangerous vacuum in the country. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. The European forces completed their withdrawal from Mali in November, ending a 14-year effort to keep the country safe from militant Islamist groups. UNHCR representative Amali Mohamed Toure says that effort failed. Speaking from the town of Mopti, he says he has just returned from a long visit to the northern part of Mali to assess the condition and needs of those displaced by the escalating violence and threats of armed groups. Tori says the impact of the vacuum created by the departure of Bakani, the counterinsurgency operation led by France and European troops from the region is very severe. And in this vacuum that right now we don't have any state authorities in that region, so it really left in the hands of uh, armed group of terrorists, armed groups that are really spreading terror, spreading uh, killing, spreading uh, uh, rapes, creating uh, misery. He says this has triggered mass displacement in the region. He underscores violence and threats by armed groups in the village of Tillit have forced more than 3,700 local Malians and refugees from Burkina Faso to flee to the city of Gao for safety. He says the displaced are living under trees and makeshift shelters with little food and water. He notes pregnant and nursing mothers, the elderly, the disabled, and separated children urgently need health care. He says the needs of Mali's forcibly displaced are great, but the response of the international community to their plight has been tepid. Unfortunately, there is kind of Mali fatigue, if I can call it that way, and we are really seeing a kind of diminution drastically of the assistance provided to IDPs and refugees. We are talking about almost half a million of people who are in the need of assistance in terms of displacement. Torre says the UNHCR cares for nearly 3 million people in Mali, including the displaced. 
who need protection and humanitarian assistance. Regrettably, he says, only 38% of last year's appeal for $66.4 million has been met. He urges the international community to show greater compassion and generosity and not allow Mali to become a forgotten crisis. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The United Nations says unidentified assailants have abducted a doctor working for the World Health Organization in eastern Mali. According to Reuters News Service, Dr. Mohamedou Diwara was taken from his car on Monday in the town of Menaka. Diawara has been working in eastern Mali to treat communities at risk of violence for two years. The UN is cooperating with local authorities to investigate the kidnapping. Opposition leader Tundu Lisu arrived in Tanzania today to a warm welcome by supporters at the Julius Nerere International Airport before making his way to address a rally in commercial capital Dar es Salaam. Lisu, who is the vice chairman of the Chadema opposition political party, has been a fierce critic of the government. In 2017, he was shot 16 times by unknown gunmen who left him for dead. VOA's Esther Gitu Award spoke with Lisu via Skype before he boarded an airplane from Belgium where he had lived in exile. Lisu said he is pleased with Tanzania's President Samia Suluhu's lifting of a ban to allow opposition politicians to gather and engage in politics. He said he will push for constitutional reforms to allow democracy in Tanzania to thrive. Well, uh, President Samia's recent lifting of the illegal ban on political activity for the opposition means that we in the political opposition can now do what the law has always allowed us to do, and that is carry out political rallies, meetings, demonstrations in accordance with Tanzanian law. What the president did was actually to lift an illegal ban. We have, we cannot, we cannot, we must underline that. Take us back uh, to your own personal story, your personal political tribulations that had you maimed and perhaps left for dead and how you moved on from there. Well, as, as you may remember, on September 7th of 2017, in the afternoon, I was attacked outside my uh, parliamentary apartment in Dodoma, Tanzania, by people who have never been identified to date. And I was hit 16 times and left for, for, for dead, as you, as, you, as you put it. Uh, but uh, God is great. I was rushed to hospital, and thereafter I was rushed to Kenya where I was in hospital for four months, and eventually I came to Belgium where I spent 11 months in hospital and 25 surgeries in in total. Now, talk to us about how your life has been, I would say, in exile in Belgium. I woke up one fine morning, went to my office. I never returned home, and uh, I have not been able to return home ever since that that fateful day, uh, with the exception of the the three months that I spent campaigning for the presidency 
in 2020. These have been some of the most difficult periods of my of my life, um, separated from my family, separated from the people I love, separated from my the country that I have loved, that I call home, uh, that I you know I I I vowed to 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 serve. So so these five years have been very very difficult. Are you confident that you can now return to active politics? Well, I, I never left political scene. I, I may have been out of the country, but I was never out of the country's politics. Uh, as you may remember, I returned in 2020 to face uh, John Pombe Magufuli in the presidential race. Um, uh, and what happened, happened, but uh, I never left politics. So what were your reflections when you saw the Tanzanian opposition political parties meeting this past Saturday? Uh, I, I must say I was not entirely surprised uh, by the, the high turnout. I wasn't entirely surprised by the massive uh, and emotional uh, uh, you know, reconnection with the people and their leaders. Mr. Lisu, if you do get a chance for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Samia Suluhu Hassan, what will your discussions be like? I will tell her exactly what I told her on the 17th of February last year when I met her in Brussels, that the country needs a new constitution, a new democratic and a constitution that will create and a, a government accountable to the people and to representative institutions of the people. We need freedom, justice, and people-centered development. That was Tanzanian opposition leader Tundu Lisu. He spoke via Skype with my colleague Esther Gitu Award yesterday before he arrived in Tanzania. For more on Lisu's return to his country, check out voaafrica.com. A new report on African governance says Africa is less safe and democratic than 10 years ago. The study by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation attributes that to over 23 successful and attempted coups since 2012. Eight have been successful, including two each in Mali and Burkina Faso, both which are also fighting an Islamic insurgency. The report also says that nearly 70% of all Africans and more than 30 countries saw a decline in security and rule of law, including South Sudan, Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, Cameroon, Central African Republic, and Burundi. Many of the nations in the index have introduced emergency measures and a clampdown on civil society. The report notes that African nations are influenced by the global growth of authoritarianism in countries such as Turkey, China, Russia, and Hungary. Mo Ibrahim, a British billionaire born in Sudan, committed to democracy, said Africa is not responsible for some of the issues exacerbated its governance issues, like climate change or food shortages from the war in Ukraine. But he said the continent is responsible for bad governance. The index does not does note improvements in some areas, including economic growth, improved infrastructure, education, and gender equity. <music> 
You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen is in South Africa on a three-day visit. The trip is part of the promise President Joe Biden made at the U.S. African Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. last month, where he pledged to deepen ties with Africa. In Johannesburg, reporter Tuso Kumalo has been following Secretary Yellen's visit, and a few hours ago he spoke with me to update us on developments. Welcome. Thank you so much. So, what's the latest you have for us regarding the U.S. Treasury Secretary's visit? Today, on day two, she visited uh, uh, the Dinokeng uh, Game Reserve, just 60 uh, kilometers out of Pretoria, the north of Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. And uh, she she went around, and uh, it gave a feel of how to see these wildlife animals in their natural habitat. And after that, she briefed the media. The media and uh, in, the meeting, in the meeting with the media, she emphasized that uh, the U.S. is committed in fighting wildlife uh, trafficking as well as uh, poaching. You know South Africa is experiencing quite a lot of uh, poaching, especially with the rhino poaching. And she, she's saying uh, together with South Africa, they formed a task force uh, that is going to be looking into sharing information about uh, uh, the, the poachers and the traffickers of, of wildlife, as well as uh, uh, tracking the finances really uh, that are coming out of that and fueling uh, this illegal industry. Of, of course, also she said uh, this entity is going to help also in strengthening uh, the mechanisms within the countries so that uh, uh, poaching is, uh, is stopped even before it happened. So uh, today it was uh, a U.S. Uh, uh, giving a hand to South Africa to say uh, this is what we can do in terms of fighting poaching, not only in South Africa, but globally as well. So she has she met any South African official? After that meeting, she is scheduled to meet uh, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, but uh, this is a closed meeting. The media uh, not allowed there, but we know the issues uh, that are there, uh, the issues of uh, strengthening economic relations, expanding trade, which is very, very key at the moment uh, for South Africa. Uh, the indication earlier was uh, in, in her artillery, it wasn't in the program that she's going to meet Ramaphosa, but today getting confirmation that uh, uh, that meeting will take place so that uh, at least there is Ramaphosa and those in South Africa stands and welcoming hand to U.S. plans to invest and expand trade in South Africa. Uh, South Africa's closeness uh, with Russia, especially regarding the uh, Ukraine crisis, uh, do you think, uh, can we anticipate a major change in U.S. trade policy for South Africa? Currently, that's unlikely because what we saw is that after the Russian minister visited here, uh, the South African government, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in South Africa was full of praise of their relations, the discussions, even rejecting uh, questions, uh, questioning that was saying, why is South Africa hosting uh, military drills for, for Russia and China, saying uh, no one should tell South Africa what to do. South Africa is a sovereign state and has to do things according to what it thinks. So both of them have been very much welcome. Uh, uh, Secretary Yellen, welcome in all the areas that she's going and has indicated the meeting uh, with the President Ramaphosa. And of course, the, the, the Russian ambassador also, the Russian minister also very much welcome. So it seems South Africa uh, is, is treating them as, as people that are coming to invest. And for it, that's enough, not getting into the politics and differences between the U.S. and Russia on the issue in Ukraine.
To Sokumalo from Johannesburg, closely monitoring Secretary Yellen's visit to South Africa. Uh, thank you for your input, Tuso. Thanks so much. Some foreign policy analysts say U.S. plans to designate a Russian private military company, the Wagner Group, as a transitional criminal or as a transnational criminal organization could be a signal to countries, especially in Africa, to backpedal on their engagements with the mercenaries. The move also could hamper the Kremlin war on Ukraine. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the sanctions that go with designating the Wagner Group as a criminal entity will squeeze its ability to do business around the world. The group has a presence in Libya, the Central African Republic, Sudan, Mali, and Syria with documented reports of human rights abuses and lootings. Atlantic Council analyst Michael Shorkin, also with a 14th North Strategies, told VOA that it is unclear what impact this designation would have. VOA's Ignatius Anor spoke with Shorkin about how the sanctions could affect its operations in Russia's war on Ukraine and in other countries. So, to be honest, it's not clear what impact this has on the Wagner Group itself. Um, I mean, we'd like to think that sanctions have lots of effects and they tend not to. Uh, they tend to have less of an effect than we would like. Uh, hopefully, at the very least, it sets a message saying that this is what we think of the Wagner Group. And hopefully, also, this might encourage countries, perhaps in Africa, to think twice of engaging Wagner services because that this could risk getting them in trouble with the United States government. I wouldn't say that what the U.S. is doing now is it in any way sufficient, but at least it's necessary and just something that has to be done. I mean, yeah, maybe this should have been done a year ago, probably, or several years ago, but, but here we are, so we're doing it now. Wagner is heavily involved in Ukraine, helping Russia's soldiers on the front line, however. Declan Galvin of Nairobi-based risk advisory company WS Insight told Ignatius Anor the designation by the U.S. is a strong alert for anybody who engages the services of the Wagner Group. It certainly is justified. Um, what's unfortunate is it's taken uh, as long as it has for some more robust action um, to kind of both designate and then and then enhance sanctions on not just uh, the Wagner Group, but it's, of course, it's financiers and, and then um, to, to punish or penalize anybody who, who, who tries to facilitate that, that organization. What it does mean is, at least with these sanctions, that anybody who, who tries to dabble or interact with, with the Wagner Group uh, faces kind of more penalties and, 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 and uh, kind of uh, repercussions. Um, and so that will help somewhat dissuade um, but it remains, remains like a major concern. Galvin said the Wagner Group seems to be succeeding largely due to its use of modern technology, so the U.S. sanctions could curtail its access to drones and telecommunications equipment that would weaken its ability to back the Russian military in the war. Essentially, they are deploying some of these small drones in advance of, of certain Wagner units to collect real-time intelligence and then allow... Uh, uh, those Wagner fighters to navigate or to to manage to flank uh, Ukrainian forces. So that kind of technology uh, needs to be basically uh, taken and redirected away from them. Um, If that's U.S. technology or if that's technology uh, 
that uh, uh, is, is being, being kind of sold directly to them. These new sanctions should hopefully reduce that. Being able to identify those supply chains and then, and then disrupt them is going to be very important. Uh, and I think that these sanctions should, um, should facilitate that disruption. On Saturday, the Wagner Group's head responded to the White House in a short letter requesting an explanation of why it is being sanctioned for. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhibi in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokwilia Barrow, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.